in our text today, as you heard, Paul is addressing single people and he is addressing married people. And this prompted me to do something this week. I looked up different names for single ministries in various churches. And so I thought I'd begin the service with reading you just a few of those. Solo flight. It's one a singles ministry in a church. Another one was one is a whole number. Single and soaring. That's the content group. This one surprised me. Single for now. Sort of presumptuous. And then SWAT. SWAT. Singles with a testimony. It's rich, rich. As best we can tell, there was no age-based formal ministries in Corinth. There was no life stage-based ministries at Corinth. So when Paul writes his letters, he addresses everybody. He doesn't write a letter to this ministry or to that ministry or this part of the church. He's writing to a family, like we are here. So he writes to everyone, addresses everyone. And so, like we'll see today, in his letters, he will address both single people and married people. He, as he writes his letter, addresses men and women. He addresses parents and children. He addresses those who are young and those who are old. He addresses employers and employees. His assumption is that they're all there. They're all a part of the family. They're all a part of the church. And so today's an example of that. He is very brief and to the point. Very brief and to the point in this text, which means that while all of Scripture is practical at the end of the day, this, this is exceptionally exceptionally practical. So as we move forward, remember, as always, that this is quite a book that we're listening to today, a book like no other, a collection of 66 books written by 40 different men over a period of at least 1,000 years, translated into English from Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. It is a book that has withstood over the centuries more critical scrutiny than any other book in history. By far, it has withstood that scrutiny and stands today as the Word of God that has been changing lives, including my own life, my wife's life, many of yours, has been changing lives for literally thousands of years. And the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon was fond of saying, there's blood on our Bibles. There's blood on our Bibles. And he was referring to the men and women who have died in history, who have died to get this Bible into your language, to get it into an ang a language that you can understand, that you can read, to get it into your language, to get it into your hands, and ultimately to get it into your hearts. And so we pray every week, you should pray whenever you read God's Word. We certainly pray this when we sit under the preaching of God's Word, that He would take those words and get them to our hearts, that he would reach our minds, that he would sharpen our minds, help us to understand that he would soften our hearts, which are often, aren't they hard, often cold, but that he would soften our hearts so that his word, his truth would reach us and change us for his glory, ultimately, and for our good. 
That's why we pray. So will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for revealing yourself and your will to us in your holy word. Help us now to understand what we are about to read so that we will love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you will find today's text on page 898. First Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll begin in verse 6. Let's jump right in. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. This is looking back. It could be looking forward, but it's looking back to verses 1 through 5, where Paul was exhorting married couples, and at least indirectly, he made a very strong case for marriage. And so Paul here clarifies that he was not trying to say that it is a command for Christians to marry, but rather granting a concession to marry. Marriage is a good thing. Genesis 2.18 says it is not good for a man to be alone. So it is a good thing, but marriage is not, and this will become clear, marriage is not a duty for all Christians. Verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am. And Paul was single, we will find in verse 8. I'm not saying that if you're a Christian, you have to be married, Paul is saying. Actually... I wish that all were as I myself am. So Paul saw actually great blessing and benefit to being single. But, here is the rest of verse 7. Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Singleness is a gift, Paul is saying. Marriage is also a gift. If you are single... If you're here this morning and you are single, you are not incomplete. You are complete in Christ as a Christian, and it is a gift from God. And if you are married here today, it also is a gift from God. So Paul does not advocate, he's careful not to advocate one over the other. If you're single, he's ultimately saying glorify God, and he'll give help to do that. If you're married, he's saying, glorify God. For example, down in verse 17, he will say, only let each person, whether you're single, married, whatever, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Okay, so those verses that we just read, they form the introduction to what Paul is going to say next. In verses 18 through 16, Paul gives practical instruction to both of these groups, the married and the unmarried. More specifically, he addresses three groups. So among those who are single and married, he's specifically addressing three groups. We'll see. Here they are. Number one, Christians who are not married. Number two, Christians who are married. And number three, Christians who are married to non-Christians. And that covers everyone. That covers everyone that would be in that church. That covers everyone who would be in this church. So as we move forward with this, remember, this is not a comprehensive treatment on these topics. So there will be lots of questions that are maybe prompted but aren't going to be answered in this text because this is not some overarching treatment of this topic. Rather, remember what Paul is doing. He's responding to questions, specific questions. We don't know what all of them were that the Corinthians had written him about. So with all that said, let's get to the first group that Paul addresses, Christians who are not 
married. Verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So Paul was single at the time he writes this. But Paul was most likely married at some point. He was a Jew. He was a rabbi. He was probably a Pharisee, we know from reading New Testament texts. He may have even been a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, all of which would have actually required him to have a wife. But he's clearly, he's clearly not married now. So perhaps he's a widower. Or perhaps his wife left him when he converted to Christianity. But we just don't know. What we know is that as Paul writes this, he is single and he is relating here to those who are single. So nevertheless, Paul says to those who are unmarried that it is good. It is good for them to remain single. We'll talk more about it when we get there, but let me read you a few verses, just a couple paragraphs down where Paul gives a benefit to being single. Verses 32 through 34. The unmarried man is anxious, and he means anxious like in a good way here, concerned. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. So that's a benefit. He's not saying he won't say that marriage is a bad thing. Of course, he advocates for it while also advocating for singleness. He's saying that the reality is if you're not married, you can be more single-minded. You can be more wholehearted. You have more time. You have more energy in your devotion to your Lord, to Jesus. So he's going to point out later, we'll talk more about it when we get there in weeks to come, that that's a benefit. So he's telling the Corinthians who are single, who are not married, that it's not a bad thing. It's not a death sentence. Okay? It is good for them to remain single. However, there is a but. Marriage is not a command. Singleness is not a command. But, verse 9, it's not a command, but... But, verse 9, if, those who are single he's talking about, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. Well, we all lack self-control somewhere, don't we? All of us have areas in our lives where we know that we need to exercise more self-control. So, what does he talk, what specifically... What area of self-control is Paul talking about? Where if, it's lack, if you're lacking self-control in this area, then you shouldn't remain single. You should get married. So what kind of self-control? Look at the rest of verse 9. It makes it very clear. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Ah. Okay. But most of you do not need this exposited for you. You understand what Paul is talking about. He might be using veiled language again. It reminds us, though, of what Paul said in verse 5. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, look up to verse 5, where he said, To married couples, do not deprive one another. Why not? Do not deprive one another so that Satan may not tempt you because of your what? Your lack of self-control. So here's what Paul is saying. You're probably already ahead of me. It is not good for a man or woman to remain single if they burn with passion. Now, for those of you who are still wondering, well, passion for what? Well, I've got to be a faithful preacher here, so... To burn with passion is to have a strong desire for sexual intimacy. It is to have a strong desire for romantic intimacy. 
to burn with passion is to have a strong desire to be married. Incidentally, this would be a great verse for one of those Christian dating websites, wouldn't it? If I was developing one of those websites, I would come right out with it and have this verse right on the homepage. That's the purpose, right? The purpose of those websites is for those who are single but have a deep desire to not remain single. Well, here's a website. Paul did not burn with passion. Evidently, Paul did not burn with passion. Paul was consumed with other passions. When you read Paul's letters and you get to know Paul, it becomes very clear. His single-minded devotion to Jesus Christ. I have met others. I have met men and women who do not have this strong burning desire. And Paul would say they should remain unmarried. It is a gift from God. Remain single, Paul is saying. However, if they burn with passion, if they burn for benevolence, they should marry. If marriage is a deep desire, they should pursue it. It's very clear, very straightforward, very practical. So Paul has more to say to those who are single, but that is it for now. He next moves on to those who were married Christians. So these are now Christians who are married. Verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. So he's speaking to those who are married. And he's giving them a charge. And that verse means an authoritative command. And then he says, not I. Who's giving this charge? He says, not I, but the Lord. In other words, this charge that I'm about to give you comes straight from the Lord Jesus. Now quickly look down at verse 12 for a minute. You'll see a similar phrase. There Paul writes, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. This is a little different. In verse 10 he says, this is coming from the Lord, not me. And then in verse 12, he says, this is coming from me, not the Lord. So what's the deal with this? It makes it sound, doesn't it? It makes it sound like verse 10 is from God and therefore very important. And verse 12 is from Paul and therefore maybe not as important. Both should be taken seriously. Remember, when Paul speaks, he speaks as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Christ. So when Paul speaks and he writes, God is breathing out his truth through Paul, which is why all scripture is authoritative. So there's actually a very simple explanation here. What Paul does in verse 10 is repeat what Jesus had already said in Mark chapter 10. So he's literally repeating what the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, had already taught the disciples. But in verses 12 through 16, Paul speaks to something that, to his knowledge, Jesus never spoke about. And that's true. But again, whether Paul is repeating the words of Jesus or he is saying his own words as an inspired author of Scripture, both come with authority. So one's not to be listened to and heeded and the other to be disregarded. They both come with the authority of God's Word. Okay, so back up to verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. And then he'll say at the end of verse 11... And the husband should not divorce his wife. This is a straightforward instruction. 
The word separate in this day was synonymous with the word divorce. So Paul is writing, looking out to those married Christians in the church, and he is saying very clearly, do not get divorced. And again, when Paul says that, he's repeating the words of Jesus. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 9, you remember, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Yes, husband and wife, you joined yourselves together. Yes, you married one another. You said vows to one another. You committed to one another. But also, and more importantly, in fact, God joined you together. Therefore, Jesus said, let man not separate. So Paul is saying, you've heard this from Jesus. Not I, but the Lord has given you this charge. And that is the general rule. There are exceptions. There are exceptions for Christians to do not get divorced. One we will read about today. And another is mentioned by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19. But over those two very narrow exceptions is this banner, do not get divorced. God's plan, God's plan for a husband and wife is lifelong monogamous marriage. And so Christians should not get divorced. Christians should not file for divorce. Christians should not threaten divorce. Divorce shouldn't be on the table. Christians should not even consider divorce. Now, there is something else that Paul says here. And he says it knowing that some are going to get divorced anyway. So he gives us instruction. It's very clear, isn't it? He knows that some are still going to go the other way. He knows that some will disobey his instruction. And perhaps some already had by the time they received this letter. And so he gives added direction. And I'll read it along with verse 10 so it makes sense. But the added direction is in verse 11. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. And now here it is, verse 11. But if she does, if she does do what she shouldn't do, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So here's what Paul is saying. If you do divorce, if you do separate your lives from one another, because this would be, biblically speaking, an unlawful divorce, you are not free, Paul is saying, you are not free to remarry unless it is remarriage to the one that you divorced. That's his clear teaching. In other words, not all divorces dissolve the marriage in God's eyes. And so, for this man or for this woman to remarry would be to sin. It would be to, in fact, commit adultery. It would be to cheat on their first spouse. That is precisely the point that Jesus is making in Matthew 5.32 when he says, Everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, in other words, the sexual union has already been broken, adultery has already happened, but if it hasn't, everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. Because in that day, if a man divorced his wife, she would need to remarry. She couldn't go get a job and provide for herself in that culture. And when she did, on her wedding night, she would be committing adultery. It was an unlawful divorce. And he says, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Very straightforward teaching from Paul, isn't it? Very to the point. 
One theologian wrote, But as husbands, he's talking about in this day, but as husbands frequently divorced their wives, either it was much like today, maybe even worse, either because their manners were not congenial or because their personal appearance did not please them or because of some offense, and as wives too sometimes deserted their husbands on account of their cruelty or excessively harsh and dishonorable treatment. Based on that, Paul says that Marriage is not dissolved by divorces or dissensions of that nature. For it is an agreement, marriage is, it is an agreement that is consecrated by the name of God. This is important. Which does not stand or fall according to the inclination of men so as to be made void whenever we may choose. Strong, straightforward teaching. And so Paul gives Christians who have defiantly divorced two options, remain unmarried or reconcile. There's two options. For those who have defiantly divorced, remain unmarried or reconcile. Now remember, again, this is not a comprehensive treatment on divorce and remarriage. The Bible has much more to say about divorce and remarriage. Paul is responding to specific questions. But he's very clear, nevertheless. He's very clear. So he says to the married Christians, and he would say to those Christians who are married today, he gives this command, do not get divorced. That brings us to the last group. The last group Paul has practical instruction for Christians who were married to non-Christians. What a difficult thing. What a painful thing. As a pastor, I've probably seen more suffering and more pain come out of this scenario than any other. And often, and unfortunately, it's not a Christian married to a professing non-Christian. It is a Christian married to a professing Christian who is clearly not a Christian. Which may be worse. Which has additional challenges and difficulties and more easily sort of floats under the radar and goes unnoticed. But is this situation... So Paul writes now to Christians married to non-Christian, to the rest I say, and it's going to become clear that that's who he's talking about. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. So there's that difference. Again, to Paul's knowledge, Jesus did not speak directly to this, which makes perfect sense. Because this situation was not even possible before the death resurrection and ascension of Jesus. But now, in the early church, you have married couples and one of them may convert to Christianity while the other one does not. So it was a major problem. It's a major problem. One, they both went into the marriage, not believers. One becomes a believer. Now what? And so Paul says here that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And then the opposite is true. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. A Christian should never put themselves in this situation. This is why it is so foolish, right, for Christians to consider a non-Christian for marriage. It's foolish for Christians to court or date non-Christians. It's foolish because, well, other scripture would make it clear that it's disobedient and actually sinful, 
but you're immediately setting yourself up, right, to put yourself into a situation that leads to so much grief and so much pain and so much suffering. We joke about it, missionary dating, as if that was the goal. I'm really just trying to win this person to Jesus, and then once I do, but that is very dangerous. Some of you I know, you're married today, and you're both Christians, and it didn't start off like that. And so praise God, that's good, God was able to work through that, but that doesn't, and I hope you wouldn't say it, that doesn't make it wisdom, what you did. That just means that God is able to take stupid stuff we do and use it for his glory. And he does that all the time. He does that in my life every day. So a Christian should never put themselves in this situation, but they may find themselves in this situation. And apparently some in Corinth did. And think about this. Understandably, they had a concern. We're probably getting to maybe what their questions were at this point. For those who were Christians in the church of Corinth and who were married to non-Christians. After all, they had heard Paul teach things like 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He also taught things like we read last week in 1 Corinthians 6.15 about the impurity of Christians sexually uniting themselves to an unbeliever. So they might take teaching like that and verses like that, and it would be very logical for them to look at their own situation. Here they are, a Christian unequally yoked. We're told not to, so do we need to unyoke from one another? Is divorce something that needs to happen? Or if we don't, does that mean that the unbeliever that the Christian is married to is going to negatively influence the believer? Or maybe even the way Paul was talking, maybe even somehow make the believer unclean in the eyes of God? I mean, that would make perfect logical sense based on the teaching that Paul had Brought. So he clarifies. He clarifies. He makes his instruction very plain. I'll read it again. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, in other words, she doesn't leave him, she doesn't divorce him, he should not divorce her. And likewise, verse 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, to not leave her, to not divorce her, then she should not divorce him. So it's the same rule at the end of the day, isn't it? What was the rule he gave to those Christians who were married? Do not get divorced. What is the general rule he gives to Christians married to non-Christians? Do not get divorced. But they still had questions. What about this unequally attached and yoked to this unbeliever? What about you said that an unbeliever and a believer, when they sexually unite, it unites Christ to an unbeliever. It's impure. It's unclean. So what's going on here? So there still be questions. So Paul gives this reason in verse 14, which would speak to those concerns. Concerns about maybe some sort of spiritual cross-contamination. Fears they may have had. So he's given the instruction in verse 13 not to divorce. And then he writes this in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise... Your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What is he talking about? If you Google this verse, this is one of those verses, right, where you get a million different answers. For us, where he's spoken plainly in the verses before, at first sight, this is 
in my opinion, not so clear. This is not so plain. There's been disagreement over it over the years, but whatever it means, we'll, we'll talk about what it means, but whatever it means, this is clear and agreed upon. Cross-contamination is not a concern. I mean, that is absolutely clear. In other words, bad things are not unintentionally transferred from the unbeliever to the believer. Rather, good things, I mean, whatever this is, it's good, Good things are transferred from the believer to the unbeliever. So there's no contamination. The believer is not polluted. And again, that'd probably be a concern. The believer is, is not polluted in that relationship. They are not infected. They are not contaminated. They are not defiled. They are not corrupted. Rather, the unbeliever is made holy. The unbeliever is made holy. That to me is fascinating. The unbeliever is made holy. It works in the opposite direction you might think. Not evil over good, but it's good over evil. The believer is not made unholy. I mean, that's the whole concern, right, with the Christian dating, the non-Christian. and I mean, that's our concern. But here this couple is married and the believer is not made unholy in that relationship. Rather, and it's not just that they didn't get anything bad. Rather, the unbeliever is made holy. It needs to be thought about. John Calvin succinctly observed, the godliness of the one does more to sanctify the marriage than the ungodliness of the other to make it unclean. Okay, so what does it actually mean? What does it actually mean that the unbelieving wife or husband is made holy by their unbelieving or by their believing spouse? Well, the word for holy used here is the Greek word agiatso, and it has a couple of meanings. It can refer to something outward. It can refer to something inward. It can refer to position. Or it can refer to purity. And one doesn't necessarily lead to the other, save for the Christian it does. Like for the Christian made holy position. And it leads to purity. But that is not always the case. But those are the two meanings of holy. Outward and inward. Position, purity. Outwardly, or positionally speaking, to be made holy means to be set apart. It means to be set apart for something. For a purpose usually for a special purpose or a special use. So to be made holy is to be set apart, set aside for something special. That's one of the meanings of this word. 1 Timothy 4, 4 is an example. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it, all that stuff, is made holy. It is made holy by the word of God and prayer. It is set aside, it is set apart by God for special use. So, because of the believer in the family... There's one believer. Because of the believer in the family, the spouse, the unbelieving spouse, is made holy. The unbelieving spouse is set apart for something special. That's what we have so far. Set apart for something special. And because of one believer in the family, and this was a more widely accepted fact, the children are also made holy. He actually, the way he structures it is he appeals to that. He says, well, you all believe your children aren't unclean. 
you all believe your children are clean in these mixed marriages of a Christian and non-Christian. He said, well, well, if they're not unclean, if they're holy, then obviously this relationship is also holy. That's how he's making the appeal. So this believer in this non-believing family changes the whole family. That's fascinating, isn't it? It has a real effect on the entire family. Paul says, same with your kids, same with the spouse. They are, here's something special, just that we know, they are the beloved of a believer. That is a special thing. To be loved by someone who loves Jesus, that is something very special. The love that someone gives that first loves Jesus is better than and different than love that comes from someone who doesn't love Jesus. Your ability to love, your capacity to love, your understanding of love, that's all magnified in Christ. If you are in Christ, united to Him and the recipient of His love. It changes you. It transforms you. So they are the beloved of a believer. Let me read to you, though, three short quotes. And these are from, these are from men in history who have done a lot of legwork. They understand this verse better than I do. Charles Hodge, he said, this gets to the outward inward, when therefore it is said that the unbelieving husband is sanctified, that's another word for made holy, by the believing wife and the unbelieving wife by the believing husband. The meaning is not that they are rendered inwardly holy, nor that they are brought under a sanctifying influence necessarily, but that they were sanctified by their intimate union with a believer. And Richard Pratt, he writes, in the very least, these unbelievers come into contact with the gospel and Christian graces in ways that ordinary people never experience. Set apart for something special. And here's Anthony Thistleton. Indeed, Paul asserts the solidarity of the family works in the other direction. The consecration, lifestyle, values, and influence of the Christian spouse and parent has a wholesome and salutary effect on the unbeliever and on the child also. If the Christian spouse lives in faith, prayer, and a gospel lifestyle, this will permeate the home and in effect amount to a consecrating influence on spouse and child. So that's the reason he gives why they're not to get divorced. So what is the exhortation? Again, that's what he's ultimately giving these three, three groups of people. The practical instruction to believers married to unbelievers is do not get divorced. Do not get divorced. You're not polluted. You're not contaminated. You're married. Marriage is a good thing. This is not a bad thing. Your spouse is actually sanctified, made holy, set aside by God for special use. He's put a Christian in that home. How blessed is that family? He's put a Christian in that home. So, he says, do not get divorced. But, this is how he writes. Gives a strong, emphatic point. But, there is another but at the beginning of verse 15. There is one exception to do not get divorced that Paul brings up here. Let's read the verse. But if, if the unbelieving partner separates or divorces or leaves 
Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So let's put this together. So the Christian is not to divorce the non-Christian. The believer is not to divorce the unbeliever. But what if the unbeliever divorces the believer? That's the point he's bringing up. That's the possible scenario. What if the unbeliever leaves? What if the unbeliever splits? And probably, this is important, Probably what Paul has in mind here is the unbeliever leaves the believer because the believer is a believer. I mean, that was definitely the situation that was going on in Corinth. In other words, your Christianity and your faith and your obedience to God and your purity and the conflict that that brings to me and to my beliefs or to this marriage or my desires or, or my wants I'm out of here. I mean, that's the scenario that would have been happening in this context. So that's what he proposes. That's the, that's the if. And remember, that may have been what happened to Paul. Either that or his wife died. This could be deeply personal for Paul. Verse 15, But if the unbelieving partner separates. And if that's the case, here's Paul's instruction to the believer, let it be so. Let it be so. The King James Version says, if they depart, let them depart. The NASB says, if they leave, let them leave. And again, our ES. V translation says, if they separate, let it be so. And what does Paul mean by let it be so? It's made clear in the very next sentence. In such cases, the brother, the Christian, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. The NIV says not bound. The King James says not under bondage. In other words, not enslaved to the marriage, not bound to the marriage, not obligated to resist this leaving, to resist this divorce, not obligated to fight this leaving, to fight this divorce, because the end of verse 15, God has called you to peace. So in a nutshell, in a nutshell, here is the difficult reality brought to life here. Because remember, this is not Paul writing to give professing Christians a loophole or a way out of marriages that they're just not really satisfied with. He said, do not get divorced. But he says there's a rare exception here. So in a nutshell, what he's saying here is faithfulness to Jesus may cost you your marriage. That's a very real possibility. He says, don't get divorced. Don't leave. Don't you file. Don't you take off. Don't you run. Don't you split. But the reality is your faithfulness to Jesus, it may cost you your marriage. And if it does, then you would be an unmarried believer, deserted by your unbelieving spouse, and you'd refer back up to verse 8 for practical instruction where Paul is addressing those who find themselves in that situation unmarried. He's covering everybody. Finally, a concluding remark in verse 16. Where I think Paul says something with a double meaning. It is a foundation beneath everything he has just said in verses 12 through 15. Which is namely what? Do not get divorced unless your unbelieving spouse leaves you, then let them go. That very clearly is what he is saying. So he says this as a foundation underneath that. So have that in mind. 
a believer. The unbeliever is leaving. Before they're leaving, hold on to this marriage. Fight for this marriage. Love your unbelieving spouse. Be good to your unbelieving spouse. It is a good thing. They're made holy by you. But if they go, let them go. So here he says as a foundation under all that. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? I wonder if you can see the double meaning. There are two ways that this can be read. There are two ways that this can be an encouragement. First, referring to what he said in verses 13 through 14, which was do not get divorced. Referring to those verses, this would work like this as a, a ground beneath that where he said do not get divorced. It would be like this. Do not divorce your unbelieving spouse for who knows? You may save your spouse. There's a foundation beneath that. It's motivation and encouragement. Your spouse has been made holy and they may come to Christ through your example and through your influence. And that would be and should be enough for many unbelieving spou for believing spouses to say, yes, that's right, who knows? I may be used by God to save my spouse. You hope this, you pray for this. But on the other hand, Referring to what he said in verse 15, where if the unbeliever leaves, let them leave. Then it would work like this. If your unbelieving spouse leaves you, let them go. After all, you don't know whether or not you'd be able to save them. In other words, don't force this marriage out of evangelistic hope. Does Paul understand the human heart or what? I mean, he knows exactly what a Christian is thinking in either of those situations. He knows the, the tension that they feel. He knows the tearing that they feel. He knows what's going through their mind. If they're a Christian and they're devoted to Christ first and concerned for the salvation of this unbelieving spouse, whether they stay, whether they go. He knows the kind of encouragement they need. He knows the kind of motivation they need. And so he goes back to reminding them of God's sovereignty. Listen, God is in charge here. God is in charge. You may or may not be used by God for the good of this person that you love maybe and care about, but it is ultimately God. He's the one who must work. He's the one who must save. So trust Him. If the unbeliever leaves, let them leave. You're not the only one who has influence over them. In a moment, God can save them. But if you're in that relationship and they're not leaving, but you're struggling and maybe you want to leave, hey, remember, God may use you to bring them to faith. He knows exactly what a Christian, not just a professing Christian, he knows what a Christian would be wrestling with. You may win them to Christ, so if they are willing to stay, do not divorce them. You may not win them to Christ. So if they choose to leave, it's okay. Let them go. So in summary, to these three groups, to the unmarried Christians, Paul has said, it is good for you to be single unless you burn with passion. If so, get married. That's the practical instruction. Those of you who are here and you are single, whether you have never been married or whether you are a widow or widower or whether you have been divorced, Paul is saying it is good for you. It is a good thing for you too, if possible, remain single. Take Paul's instruction to heart. To the married Christians, 
Paul has clearly said, do not get divorced. Those of you who are here as couples and you're both Christians, I hope you know how blessed you are. I mean, you have got it so good. And there are, and you may know, Christians who do not have that. They may be single and not married, and they desperately want to be married. Or they may be married, but their spouse is not a believer. And it's so difficult, and it's so hard, and they can't connect with their spouse in the most important way that they would want to connect with this person that they love. If you are here this morning and you are a believer, and you are married to a believer, I know they're a screwed up believer. I know they sin against you, and I know they do stupid things and say stupid things. And I know they've got problems, and I know they've got issues, and I know you have those same problems and those same issues. But understand, if they are in Christ and you are in Christ, as far as marriage goes, it does not get any better. It is a foretaste of heaven. Be thankful. God has not saved just one in that marriage. That's a big deal. God has saved two in that marriage. It's like, are you kidding me? We both love one another and are committed to one another. And we also both love Jesus and are committed to Jesus. And, and the other one knows that I love Jesus more than I love them. And they're okay with that. And they're good with that and want to encourage that. And sharp, I mean, it does not get any better than that. So be thankful for that. No matter how difficult, no matter how hard it gets, do, what's Paul's instruction, do not get divorced. Don't talk about that. That's very practical. If you get really mad and you get really angry and there are difficult seasons and there wouldn't be a single married couple in here that wouldn't stand up and say, yes, there are difficult seasons in marriage. But you don't ever threaten to divorce. If you are two Christians married, your spouse needs to know come hell or high water, you're never going anywhere. Don't plant those seeds. Don't use other words that kind of sound like it. Don't do things with your actions that make it look like that's something that you would do. It, just, it can't even be in the ballpark. Don't think about it. Don't threaten it. Don't ever file for it. Do not get divorced. I know there might be a couple exceptions, but we've got to get the force of what Paul is saying here. He's not getting into that right now. He's saying, do not get divorced. This is for your whole life. And then finally, to the Christians married to non-Christians, Paul has said, do not get divorced unless your spouse leaves you. If they do, let them go. So for those of you who are in what can be very difficult marriages, stay devoted. Be encouraged. Stay devoted to your husband or wife. But if they choose to leave, you may let them go. What about those who have remarried and looking back, they should not have remarried? What about those who are in especially or exceptionally difficult or painful situations, right? There's so many questions that just start coming to mind. And some of them are very personal for some of you. And I would say this, speak to a pastor. And maybe you have a Christian friend that loves you and knows the word. That'd be a good option too. But if not, or otherwise, speak to a pastor. What are pastors? They are shepherds. So the role of a pastor is to, just quoting scripture here, to keep watch over a group of Christians. 
That's what your pastors are for. If you're in one of those exceptionally difficult situations or you have questions or you're not sure about this or about that or what should you do? And so many of you do seek counsel. But if not, and you have those questions or you're in a situation like that, please talk to me. Talk to me. Come up to me after service. Send me an email. Call the church. Talk to one of our other pastors. If you don't know who they are, go to the website. Look at their picture. Look at their name. We're not that big. Find them. We'd love to talk with you. In conclusion. In conclusion, back to what Paul was saying in verse 16. We understand, of course, that it is God alone who saves I mean, maybe you came here and you don't know that and you're just hearing that. But most of you I know, you know that. Even the language of verse 16, you may save them. We read that and say, save them? I don't save anybody. God, is that some kind of a mistranslation? Because you know, right? You know, ultimately, God saves people. We don't save anybody. But we know what Paul means in verse 15. In order for someone to be saved... They need to believe the gospel. And God, we know, needs to change their heart and soften their heart and open their eyes and open their ears so that they can believe the gospel. But guess what else needs to happen? They need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the gospel so that God can activate that faith and that belief. What is the role of a Christian? We are declaring the gospel. That's what Romans 10 is saying. It's why it says at the end in verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So the person with the gospel comes and tells the gospel. They're preaching the gospel. And then God comes and works and causes this unbeliever to believe and they are saved. They would not have been saved ultimately apart from God's word, but they also would not be saved apart from you sharing the gospel with them. And we can keep backing up and God made you do that. Of course, God's in charge of all of this and He's directing all of it and influencing all of it. But it is our responsibility to preach the gospel. In our families, looking at the context here, in your marriage, in your parenting, what is assumed is that you are working to save people, which means you are working to declare the gospel to your spouse, to your kids. That you're working to demonstrate the power of the gospel so that what you say is backed up by what you do and how you live. See, this thing that I believe affects everything in my life. My demeanor, my decisions, my attitudes, everything. It should be evident. We declare the gospel and then we trust God for the results. We understand that we may not save all those we love. So some of the hardest things to think about. But we trust God at the end of the day. God does all things well, doesn't He? He will do what is best. He will do what is right. He may use someone else to save those you love. He may let it be so. But we trust God. We love Him. So for unbelieving spouses that might even be here today, or unbelieving children that might be here today, do you believe the gospel? If so, do you live like you believe the gospel? In other words, are you sure? If you believe the gospel, it changes everything. Dramatically. You believe the gospel? Do you live like you believe the gospel? Are you devoted to Jesus Christ? Do you love Jesus Christ? As Joshua looked out and said to God's people, choose this day whom you will serve. And that same call goes out to unbelievers today. Choose who you're going to serve. Are you going to serve God or something else? Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve yourself? Are you going to serve God or some other religion that you've found or made up? 
Choose this day is the exhortation, is the call. Choose this day who you will serve. Come to Jesus, we would say. Repent from your sin and turn to Jesus. Receive Jesus. Jesus himself told people to do this. In John 7, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. He's pleading with people. If you are thirsty spiritually, come to me. Whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I'll give you more water than you know what to do with. In Matthew 11, he says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened. This is Jesus saying, okay, you're weary, you're heavy burdened, you're spiritually thirsty, you know something's missing. You know, he's saying, this is it, I am the way and the truth and the life. The only way to the Father is through me. And so Jesus himself says, come to me. And we say today, come to Jesus. Go to Jesus. As you sit in your seat right now. You don't have to do anything fancy. Right now in your seat, come to Jesus. Ask forgiveness for your sin. Ask forgiveness for going your own way. Ask forgiveness for believing things that you wanted to be true, but you know are not true. If you're being confronted with the truth and you believe now, commit yourself in your heart to Jesus Christ. And follow Him. And serve Him as long as you live.